Well, I welcome all of you that are here uh, at the North Richard Hills campus and all of you watching online or listening later uh, by podcast. One of the things about our church that I think is a bit unique is that many churches kind of take the summer off, and it seems like we ramp up in the summer. Uh, We had summer spectacular and all that entailed. We've already had a number of mission trips, just two last week doing a VBS in New Mexico and uh, doing works of compassion in Oklahoma. Uh, We just got through a big group out at Royal Family Kids Camp, taking some inner city children out for a week of camping and great mentoring from role models. Uh, You're wondering where the young people are. Most of our younger kids are at Camp Revolution this week, and our teenagers are off at Pine Cove in New Mexico for a week of camp. Uh, we've got another Royal Family Kids Camp coming up. We've got more mission trips coming up. It just keeps going and going. And I love that about us, that we don't take a vacation from the work of the Lord. And something else I love about you, you don't take a vacation from giving to the Lord. A lot of churches in the summer, their giving takes a huge plummet. Well, here's the reality. We spend more ministry dollars in the summer than any season of the year. Uh, we do more ministry and more good things like we just talked about. That's our funded through your weekly giving. So thank you for being faithful. I know in some ways it seems a little more exciting to give to our Harvest Weekend for our mission efforts or Renew Weekend that we had a month ago. But the reality is most of the ministry done in this church is because every week you're just faithful with your tithes and your offerings. And so please continue to do that because we want to continue to do the kinds of things we've been talking about today. So we're wrapping up our quick study of the life of Joseph. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 50 or open up your phone app or some of you just have committed it to memory, just find it in your mind. (laughs) I heard a great story about this 92-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman. And they walk into a drugstore together. And they go and find the pharmacist. And he says, do you sell Geritol here? Yeah, we sell a lot. How about medicine for arthritis? Yeah, we have that. What about for rheumatism? We have that too. Do you sell hearing aids here? Yes, we do. Do you have canes? Yes. And walkers? Yes. And wheelchairs? Yes, we have all that. Why are you asking? And he looked at her and smiled and said, We're getting married in a couple of weeks, and we're going to register for our gifts right here at your store. (laughs) Don't you like to see people who finish strong? Now, last time we saw how well Jacob finished his race. Jacob did not get off to a good start in his race with God, but he had a great finish. Well, what we're going to do today is watch Joseph finish his race, and he's going to run strong to the end. But unlike his father, Joseph didn't have to do a final kick. He just ran his race and brought it to a steady conclusion because he had been on this faithful course his whole life because Joseph went through life with grave faith. Now, I just invented a phrase I'm going to have to explain When you think about the hardships and the unfairnesses that Joseph endured, isn't it a little surprising that he held on to God, that he held on to faith? Because I've talked to many people who've gone through bitter life experiences, and they responded by letting go of God, by saying 
they had experienced the death of faith. But I've known other people who have gone through similarly difficult life experiences who say it brought them closer to God and increased their faith. That seems to be what happened with Joseph, that he transcended life's most bitter circumstances. They did not produce the death of faith, but he instead overcame with what I'm calling the faith of death. Or in other words, Joseph went through life dying to everything that would keep him from pursuing the dream that he was living for. And to this degree, in many ways, he modeled better than anyone in the Old Testament the kind of life that Jesus calls us to. Because Jesus calls us to a counterintuitive life. We think the way to have the life I really want, to have the joy and the happiness I really want, is to pursue my agenda, to pursue my dream, to make my happiness priority number one. And Jesus says, you got that wrong. If I was going to pick one line from Jesus that summed up his understanding of discipleship in life, I'd pick Luke 9, 24. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life, For my sake, you will save it. Jesus says, this is counterintuitive. But you think by making your agenda and your search for your happiness, the number one goal of your life, you're going to get the life you always wanted and you've made a grave mistake. But if you make God the center of your story, and if you make pursuing his purpose and his desire The pursuit of your life, in short, if you die to your agenda and live for God's, you're going to discover the life you always wanted. But it takes grave faith to believe that because it makes no sense to the flesh. What Jesus is calling us to do and what Joseph models for us is a kind of life where you put to death every attempt to seduce you into making you the star of the story. You see, Joseph could bear the difficulty of his race because he buried anything that got in the way of God's purpose for his life. He never allowed the size of the problems in his life to keep his eyes off the prize of the race. He was a brave runner because he was a grave runner. He lived his life practicing the faith of death. Now, I want to illustrate that by showing you how he finished his race. So we'll start in chapter 50 at verse 15. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us 
and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is doing it again, practicing the faith of death. And this meant for him putting to death the pull of the flesh to resentment. Because many people think the way to get ahead is to get even. Isn't that how all of our movies work? The star of the story in the first part of the movie gets done wrong. And at the end of the movie, he pays back and gets even. And we think, what a great story. It's like the grandmother that went to visit her daughter. And the first thing she did was pull out of her purse a bunch of brand new water guns that she gave to her grandkids. They squeal with delight. They run off to the sink to fill them up. And her daughter says, Mom, what are you thinking? Don't you remember how when we were kids, we drove you crazy playing with water guns? And she smiled and said, I remember. (laughs) And the flesh says, get even. But for 17 years, Joseph has buried. The temptation to turn his dream into their nightmare. And they never knew it. They're thinking the whole time, well, he's just being nice because daddy's still alive. And as soon as Jacob died, their first thought is, now he's going to turn on us. And they request forgiveness. And Joseph cries. Why? Because he realizes for 17 years, his brothers have been thinking the worst about him. And doesn't that hurt when you find out that people have a choice? They can believe the best about you or they can believe the worst about you. And they choose to believe the worst. For 17 years, they have received his love, but they haven't trusted it. They haven't understood his character. That would have made me mad. I think I would have resented their lack of trust in my lack of resentment. And he could have made them grovel. Because by the way, isn't that one way we get even? People come to us and they're sorry and they ask forgiveness. And it feels good to let them feel bad. But Joseph buried that thought. He didn't go there. 
He buried the urge because he believed God was up to something bigger than his own personal vindication. Here's why you get bitter. Because you have decided that either certain people or certain circumstances have frustrated your attempt to pursue the agenda you think will make you happy. Certain people or certain events have gotten in the way of your pursuit of what you want. And you get bitter. But, what if God could use those people and circumstances to fulfill His purpose? Am I in the place of God? What a question. Because in some ways, that is the question we've wrestled with since the garden. The serpent told Adam and Eve... Why can't you be in the place of God? Why can't you park in God's spot? And do you understand when you hold on to bitterness and you rationalize your desire to stay angry, you have decided in that situation, I can park in God's spot. And Joseph doesn't go there. He says, you intended it for harm. I'm not going to pretend it. You, you had evil emotive, evil intent. But God intended it for good. To bring about what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. Now, I'm just going to be blunt. It's time for some of you to deal with the enmity in your family. And maybe you didn't start it, and maybe it's not your fault. But you are sitting in the place of God. If you continue to let it go on. Make the first move. Get out of God's place. And instead, be a courier of God's grace. Some of us are old enough to remember the Nixon administration and the Watergate scandal. Two of his top operatives sent to prison were Charles Colson and John Ehrlichman. In prison, Colson came to Christ and after he was released, launched and founded a powerful prison ministry. John Ehrlichman despised Colson for this. Wrote scathing articles defaming him. So it's 1999. John Ehrlichman is dying of renal failure in a nursing home in Virginia. He's been abandoned by his third wife. He has so alienated his children, they won't come see him. And Charles Coulson finds out and goes to see his antagonist. Speaks the love of Christ to him. And Ehrlichman can't understand it. He can't understand this kind of faith. But three months later, just before he dies, he calls Coulson. Colson was sick, so he sent a good friend. And John Ehrlichman accepted Jesus Christ before he died. Because the antidote to a bitter heart is better faith. And so stop burying that resentment and start burying it if you want to finish strong 
But one reason it's hard for people to let go of resentment is that we, we have a culture of entitlement. Has there ever been a culture like ours who feels it is my right to have life the way I want it? And if you get in the way of the life I want, I'm going to sue you. Not Joseph. For him, faith meant the death of entitlement. Have you noticed he's just not a whiner? Even though large parts of his life, he faced trials that were unfair, undeserved, and frankly, incomprehensible. Oh sure, later in life he could look back and say, now I understand. But in the moment, he had no clue how what he was going through could have anything to do with the dream God put on his heart. But he doesn't whine He buries that whole, that's not fair, complaint that so many carry throughout life. Because he understood, just like Job, that when you walk around, that's not fair the whole time. You're subtly insinuating the character of God. Remember Joseph's theme? When your take on God is right. Your take on life can be right, no matter what life takes. And so Joseph's interpretation of life's fairness was constantly viewed through the lens of his grave faith in God's goodness. Because I'll say again, you do have a take on life. You're either looking at all of your stuff and saying, based on all my stuff, this is what I think about God. Or... You're saying, because of what I know about God, this is how I'm going to interpret all this stuff. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The hurdles of life's race tempt us To overlook all the ways God is good. Don't they? And so we go through a drought. And we forget that most of our life rain was normal. Or we experience a flood. And we forget that most of our life there weren't floods. Or we get... A disconcerting report from the doctor. And forget that most of our life, we enjoyed good health. We go through most of our life completely ignoring the goodness of God and then getting mad at God when something we don't like happens. Maybe this is why one of the most Frequently condemned sins in the Bible is ingratitude. In your New Testament, you have these lists of sins God hates. I mean, you got the big ones. Murder. Adultery. Idolatry. And right there in most of those lists, you'll get ingratitude. It is an affront to God. That He is so 
consistently good. And you walk around with this life's not fair attitude all the time. Here's the reality. You've received more blessing, more kindness, more mercy than you will ever deserve. This morning you woke up and you sucked God's air into the lungs he created. So before you got out of bed today, you had already received more than you are entitled to. Sometimes things happen we don't deserve. And we don't get it. But at all times, grave faith says, I trust God's going to work it out in this time. And I'm going to surrender the arrogance that God has to operate His sovereignty at all times in ways I understand. Because I trust in His unwavering purpose to save many lives. Some of you are familiar with the name of Corey Tin Boom. She and her Sister Betsy were taken prisoner by the Nazis. They determined they were going to sneak a Bible into prison camp and have a Bible study in Devo every day. They get sent to this camp, this horrible place called Ravensbrook. It's overcrowded and infested with fleas. And their reading that day was 1 Thessalonians 5. Be thankful to God in all circumstances. And Betsy said, we're going to thank God even for the fleas. And Corey said, I can't go there. And Betsy said, yes, you can. And they did. They thanked God even for the fleas. They didn't find out till later it was because of the fleas that the guards never interrupted their Bible studies or made unwanted advances on the women there. And Corey would go all over to the world Betsy died in prison. Corey was released and she would share her testimony. And she would often hold up this piece of embroidery. And she would say, life is often like that for us. It looks like a mess. It's chaotic. It seems to make no sense from our perspective. And then she would flip it over. And she'd say, but God is preparing you for the crown of life. And God sees what doesn't make sense to you yet. And I know that may sound trite coming from me, but when you've lived through prison cramp, you've earned the right to say that. That God is the dream weaver. He's good at what he does. He never promised the race would be easy. He promised it would be worth it. Romans 8, 18 What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he's going to reveal to us later. I read an interesting article by a British evangelist named Galvin Reed. He meets a 17-year-old teenage boy that walks in Jesus Christ with great pain. One-year-old, he falls downstairs, badly damages his skeleton. Lived more than half of his life in hospitals. He will never live a pain-free life. And this boy in his testimony talks about how good God has been to him. And Reed challenged him a little bit. You spent over half your life in a hospital? 
And you're saying God is fair? And this young man responds, oh yes, God is fair. He's got all eternity to make it up to me. Now that's the faith of death. That dies to resentment. It dies to entitlement. And I want to show you one more way that faith dies. Notice how he finished, starting in verse 22. So Joseph stayed in Egypt, along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to you and come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and say, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they'd embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, what happened between verse 21 and 22, it's a little tiny space in your Bible. It's 60 years in Joseph's life. Just like that, we fast forward over six decades. Now, what that means is that Egypt is now the only home several generations of Hebrews have ever known. You've got Hebrew grandfathers who have only ever lived in Egypt. And Egypt has been good because Joseph made sure it was. And living the good life can often be toxic to the dreams of God. And so faith sometimes means the death of contentment. Now let me explain. I think Joseph's last lap might have been his best. Do you notice that Joseph was the first of the 12 brothers to die? Now that's strange to me because he was the second youngest. It should have been Reuben or Levi or Simeon. It should have been one of the old boys. He's the second youngest brother and the first one to die. Why? I think God wanted one last opportunity to show those boys what grave faith looks like. Out of all the things in Joseph's life the Hebrew writer could have picked, here's the one he chose. Chapter 11, verse 22. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. He looked like an Egyptian. He talked like an Egyptian. He dressed and ate like an Egyptian. He was buried like an Egyptian. They embalmed him. But his very last instructions were a rebuke to Egypt. Don't you put me in a pyramid. Don't you put me in a mausoleum or a palace. You put my bones in a sack. And you take them to Canaan. Because the good life we're having right now is not the promise. It's not here. It's there. 
And God is going to come to our aid. And he buried the desire to get content in the place, in the world, in the culture that is not the promise of God. And that's hard to do. And yet I want you to think about the years ahead. And it gets bad for the Hebrews. And it gets hard. And every now and then they'd walk past a sack of bones. Who is that? That's Joseph. He once ran this country. Why isn't he buried? Because someday God's going to come and take us home. Where we belong. See, grave faith produces a kind of holy discontent with this world. Now, I don't mean whining. I'm not talking about complaining. The Bible says we groan. It doesn't say we gripe. It says we groan. Because there is this sense, this faith that produces in us this holy discontent that says, this is not the promise This is not the world God has for us. We carry perpetual spiritual green cards. We're not drifters. Drifters just wander around aimlessly. They got nowhere to go. We're pilgrims. Remember Jacob's word? The years of my pilgrimage. Pilgrims have a home. They're currently in a foreign land, but they are headed home. And if you want to focus on a good race, you've got to keep your eyes on the finish line. I've told some of you, when I was at school and college, I lived for a while in an apartment with three other roommates, and one of them was Max Lakato. And a year or two after we graduated, Max calls me. Rick, I've got bad news. Tim is dead. One of our roommates, Tim Hilmerick, coming back from a conference in Colorado, fell asleep at the wheel. His car crossed the median, slammed straight into a truck, and he's instantly killed. And here we are, two 23-year-old boys, going to the funeral of our friend. And shortly after, Max wrote me. Now, Max has written many brilliant books, but nothing he's ever written has blessed me more than the last sentence of his letter. Rick, keep your eyes on heaven. That's not escaping reality. That's acknowledging reality. Do you really think you're going to find the life you always wanted in a mall? You're putting your hope on stuff that's just going to burn someday? Isn't it interesting? This powerful book of Genesis starts in the beginning, God. And it ends a coffin in Egypt. But then you realize, that's the end of Genesis. That is not the end of God's story. Joseph's life has ended. 
But God's redemption story is just getting started. And it's going to point to the best race ever run. Because God's story is not about Joseph or Abraham or Moses or David. God's story is about Jesus. And God sent the dreamer to foreshadow the Redeemer. Who would be the star of the story? Who would be the one you build your life around? He, he's the one who's going to get betrayed by his brethren. And yet he's the one who is going to deliver. He's going to save his brothers and his sisters. He's the one who's going to lead us to our true home. And not inspire us with a sack of bones, but with an empty tomb. And he's the one before whom one day every knee will bow. He has always been the star of the story. And every other story is meant To take you to Jesus. So there's this woman named Marion Shirtliff. She lives in San Clemente, California. And last year she went to this old bookstore to buy an old Bible. She takes it home and starts flipping through it. And inside there's four folded sheets of faded yellow paper. And she starts to read because the handwriting looks familiar. And to her shock, she starts to read an essay she wrote 65 years earlier as a 10-year-old Girl Scout trying to get a badge in Covington, Kentucky, 2,000 miles away. She starts to shake and cry as she sees her life in this book. How to get there? Don't know. But hadn't that happened to you? You read God's story, and it might be about Joseph or Moses or David, but all of a sudden you realize, this is about me. This is is my struggle. This is my temptation. This is my race. But you're not the star of the story. You're in the story. You're a part of God's story. But you need a Redeemer. You need Jesus. And you need to bury anything that's keeping you from Him. So I'm going to pray right now. That's what you'll do. And I'm asking God in Jesus' name that you would come now in your powerful Holy Spirit and help us more courageously and intentionally enter into your story. We repent, God, of too many times thinking it was about us. Help us to see even more clearly it's about Jesus. But we are a part of the story. And help us now to trust what Jesus said. When we can embrace the faith of death, 
When we can die to self and live for him, we'll find the life we wanted. Now, for some of us, that's going to mean we got some work to do in our family. And so give us courage, God, to do whatever we need to do to end the war in our family. It means we need to stop complaining so much and become a happier, more joyful, thankful people. It means, God, that we need to stop getting so comfortable with this when this is so temporary. But God, most of all, it just means we need Jesus. And we need to know that we need Jesus. So help us know it. And help us tell the world. Help us die right now. And begin to live forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. I'm going to ask prayer teams to be coming down to the front right now. This is your moment to come and confess Christ. Run to your Redeemer. Confess Him and be baptized. This is your moment to run and ask for prayer. This is your moment to come to Jesus. Build your life on Jesus. He is your hope. He's your righteousness. He's your cornerstone.